Welcome to Post Doom, regenerative conversations exploring overshoot grief, grounding, and gratitude. I'm Michael Dowd, your host. And in this conversation, recorded in early December 2019, I speak with a longtime friend and colleague, Rick Ingrassi. I've known Rick since the days when he had co-founded Interface, which is Boston's largest holistic health or holistic educational center. Um, he also co-founded a number of other organizations, Physicians for Social Responsibility, for example, he's a psychiatrist. But he's also known for his work in, in the story field. Uh, he has a story dome, the Whidbey Story Dome Project, and uh, has, has been a, a parallel tracks with uh, what Connie and I have been doing in terms of the universe story, the epic of evolution for many, many years. And Rick is one of those people who, with his wife, Peggy Taylor, able to hold the big picture, including all the scary stuff, and ultimately come from a place of generosity of soul and, and a place of compassionate action. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Rick, it is a delight to interact with you in this forum because uh, we're both in Langley, Washington right now. <laughs> Can you just give us a little bit of a bio, like help us get you and, and what you uh, are known for and what you're particularly interested in or, or passionate or curious about these days? Sure. Well, I'm uh, from Western New York. I was born and raised in Niagara Falls, New York, Italian-American family. I uh, went to Cornell University and studied philosophy of mind and was pre-med. I had uh, lots of interesting psychedelic and consciousness raising experiences in the 60s. And uh, when I got to medical school, I wanted to do psychedelic psychiatry actually, but uh, Nixon started the war on drugs and slammed the door on that avenue. So my interest uh, never wavered in terms of the role that consciousness plays in human transformation. And so my adult life became an education path. You know, I also have a master's in public health from the Harvard School of Public Health. My interest there was community medicine, community mental health. And as you'll see when I share a few stories, my entire professional life and adult life has been related to the role that community and individual transformation plays in evolution. So I'm kind of a big picture thinker and, and a guy. Uh, I uh, had some formative experiences early on. Uh, when I was about 12 years old, I became a professional jazz musician, played jazz accordion of all things. And the significance of that is that uh, I had the opportunity as a young child to play and improvise and be creative in ways that made, made my life joyful and happy. So I've lived a pretty uh, charmed life on that, in that regard. Uh, after medical school and psychiatric residency in Boston, I uh, began to uh, start holistic medical clinics with colleagues and uh, experiment with integrative and complementary approaches to uh, healthcare. The work I did uh, in terms of my own practice was around mind-body healing and life-threatening illness. So I worked with, quite a bit with cancer patients and the uh, techniques that involve the role of the mind and the uh, will to live in, in, in the healing process. Mm -hmm. Again, these are themes that uh, 
when, when we talk about what we're going to focus on today, uh, they're, they're relevant because individual mortality and collective mortality essentially are parallel scalable processes. And, yes, exactly. uh, so I learned a lot about uh, death and dying and about what it means to live in the face of uh, the reality of dying. And it's, uh, it's, it's been quite a ride. Um, well, I do, a, a, like you say, a listserv called Big Mind News, and uh, it began the week after 9-11 when I realized the media spin on what had just gone down was, was going to go, uh, you know, neo-fascist and, and kind of has moved in the direction of the right wing. But the list really grew, grew out of my uh, entire learning and education process over the course of my life. I, I've always been interested in, you know, big picture, holistic thinking. Marshall McLuhan and Bucky Fuller were mentors of mine, and I started a holistic education center in Boston called Interface that ran for 25 years and brought a lot of these new thinkers and ideas uh, into the Boston area. My uh, wife, uh, Peggy Taylor, was editor and publisher of New Age Journal, which, again, uh, brought brought us in touch with a lot of the leading edge thinkers of uh, the day, the humanistic movement in particular. Mm -hmm. And so uh, as things unfolded, uh, you know, we were involved with starting uh, Hollyhock uh, Retreat Center up in British Columbia. Again, another setting where leading edge ideas and, and, and uh, processes are explored. Uh, and after a while you begin to realize, boy, there's really something to be said for people who take risks and think outside the box and, and uh, try new ways. Uh, given that I believe we're living in a moment where we have to create new stories and new ways of being that are, are a reflection of a living universe rather than, uh, you know, a mechanistic, uh, dead, purposeless uh, universe. Uh, these, I, my, my news list reflects multiple perspectives around a central theme which is life is at the center of everything and we need to find ways to be life affirming in not only the ideas we promulgate but the way we the ways we live since you used the, the term a couple times big mind big mind news to say say something quick about that well big mind is a buddhist concept for kind of the mystical state of union with all life and with the, with the cosmos. Uh, I uh, had an internet company in the uh, late 90s called Big Mind Media with a small group of people who were doing uh, what looks suspiciously like where Facebook ended up. Uh, you know, we were playing with computer conferencing and uh, connectivity uh, for individuals and groups. Uh, but uh, I don't know, there, there's something that resonates with the with, uh, my way of uh, looking at the world, the, the big mind gives you that expansive point of view and allows you to recognize that it's all connected. Everything is connected, everything is alive. Yes. And you know, you and I, it's interesting, Michael, I've known you quite a few years, you know, you, you are brilliant at languaging and you know, almost poetically coming up with ways of framing things that uh, I think are really quite valuable. I encourage you to keep doing what you're doing because uh, I just listened to your latest sermon there in Bellevue, and uh, you know that's crisp. <laughs> it's yeah, wonderful, true. And clearly, you know Thomas Berry, Brian Swim, the Universe Story, uh, 
the history, uh, that's what I res resonate with also on, on the deepest uh, philosophical and spiritual levels, you know, the, the yeah. impact of, of Thomas, uh, Thomas's work on uh, my life. Uh, I mean, you're, you're aware of the fact that uh, later on it manifested in the Story Dome project, uh, the yes, Seattle World. Some, say more about that. I was going to ask you about that, but uh, mm -hmm. now's a good time because you actually also introduced me to David McConville at, in your living room. Yes. Uh, as well as David, David White, the poet, at another time. And, you know, you're <laughs> one of the most networked people that I know, but say something about this, the, the Dome project. Well, David McConville was centered to that. He, his company, uh, Illuminati, had uh, created these inflatable, portable planetariums uh, that you could tell stories in, you know, and uh, immersive media storytelling, in other words, uh, really powerful stuff. And uh, I had met David a few years prior to 2011, and he had brought uh, a dome, a geodome, they're called, uh, to the Hollyhock Summer Gathering, uh, conference, a leadership conference that I've been doing for 34 years up at Hollyhock. Uh, and again, it was like uh, Thomas Berry's storytelling come alive, you know, the ability to paint the picture of life from the beginning all the way to, to now and looking into the future, where, did the, where does this kind of systemic thinking go, you know. Uh, anyway, I got so inspired by that that when I was invited by a friend at the uh, Seattle Center, uh, to create an exhibit for the 50th anniversary celebration of the Seattle World's Fair, I said, well, you know, why don't we get one of these domes, create a film that's about a half hour long and just show it to everybody who's interested, uh, you know, as an exhibit. And so we did, we bought a dome, we wrote a script and David McConville was very helpful with that. Um, mm -hmm. Brought some media artists together, some incredible digital Atlas of the Universe software. Mm -hmm. And we created a half hour film called Earth Portal, a guided tour of the universe and our place in it. Yes. And quite frankly, I was interested, uh, and there were lots of potential applications of this kind of storytelling, but I had the question, does it shift a person's worldview to experience even briefly a sense of connection to the universe yes. that's profound? Yes. And the answer after a year, we were there for 12 months at the Seattle Center, uh, running these shows and do, we're doing some other things with it as well. But the answer is yes. The universe story makes a difference in people's awareness, consciousness, worldview. And, uh, you know, again, this is, this is confirmation of what I already believed in a sense, but it's nice to have some empirical evidence uh, and to see people's lives and faces light up uh, from, from, a, from a new story like this. Yes. Yeah. Well, helping us shift out of anthropocentrism, human-centeredness, to a larger life-centeredness in time and space and, Absolutely. and our, our role in that. So, wow. Yeah, I consider that a required course at this point. You know, th that shift from, I call it egocentrism to eco ecocentrism, but yes. same idea, you know, that uh, our worldview, uh, this, this kind of Newtonian dualistic worldview has brought us to the brink of destruction and salvation is clearly in the holistic consciousness. You know, once, once you wake up to that, everything starts to change. And ultimately, what has to change is the way we live. Rick, coming to, to the questions that I've been uh, inviting all my guests in the series to, uh, to respond to if they want to, um, 
the first one simply related to language. What language do you find yourself using? Um, do you find post-doom helpful at all? Um, like what, what, what ways of, of speaking about to yourself and to others do you find most useful or most accurate uh, at these times? Yeah, I do find post-doom interesting and helpful. Uh, I, I haven't cozied up to it as something that, you know, becomes part of, part of my vernacular yet because when you use it, you also define it, you know, frame it in, in, in a way that makes it uh, useful. That's why I say you're very creative with language. Uh, uh, for me, you know, in the early days, I mean, I must say it was the limits to growth study in the early 70s that woke me up. It, I was enough of, by that time, of a general systems theorist and interested in holistic thinking to know that, uh, okay, if you take a systemic view of life, then clearly we are headed toward, again, my phrase, overshoot and die off. Yes, exactly. I know you like overshoot. I always include the die off part because... Yes, exactly. <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. Well, it's interesting because William Catton's second book, After Overshoot, uh, which, as you know, I consider the most important book I've ever read, was titled mm -hmm. Bottleneck, and that's the die-off part. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I find uh, lots of the, I think we should move away from global warming as a concept because it, it, it's too, mil, you know, milquetoast, it's too middle of the road. Uh, climate change, climate catastrophe, climate crisis, uh, things that point to the urgency of, of our moment. Uh, I mean, what, what really does shock me is how lackadaisical and how uh, strong the, uh, what you call functional denial is at this point that uh, we're willing, I, I don't know about you, but every day when I look at my lifestyle and I realize I'm embedded in a system that's destroying life on planet earth and creating the potential for human extinction, uh, you know, we're part of the problem. I mean, we are consumers beyond belief of energy and information. You know, it's, it's just, uh, it's gotta be acknowledged. Uh, now the, the problem is that once you see that you're embedded in a system that's destroying the planet and that you're a part of the problem, you still have to ask the question, how then shall we live? Exactly. And I must say, if you ask me to answer that question, I can't give you a solid answer at this point because, yeah. you know, well, you know, it's exactly that question. It's exactly the, not only that question, but that question following the awareness that we are embedded in systems that are, are anti-future and we're the inheritors of political, governmental, economic, religious systems that have been anthropocentric and anti-future for so many generations that we can't in any easy or meaningful way, it's certainly not enough of us can do it that it's gonna to matter to step outside the system. I mean, Thomas Berry himself used to famously say, I drove a car here to tell you how bad cars are. <laughs> um, you know, so uh, it was really Jim Bendel's uh, deep adaptation paper and then his subsequent writing since then, Catherine Ingram's uh, Facing Extinction long form essay. Very um, powerful. Yeah, uh, Paul Traferka, his uh, Approaching the Limits blog and some of the amazing things he wrote between 2008 and 2013, which is still some of the most inspiring things that I've, I've I refer everybody to his uh, uh, stages of awakening, as well as his Finding the Gift essay, which is on the other side of the Kubler-Ross stages of grief. Mm -hmm. after, after acceptance, there could be Finding the Gift. 
And then, so in addition to Jem Bendel, uh, Catherine Ingram, um, Paul Traferka, of course, Dar Jamal and Barbara Cecil's amazing truth outposts on yes. how, then, how then shall we live? And those that's were the a main, whole series. Yeah, yeah and those were the main, series. those four people more than anyone else um, were, well, five people, were the, the main sort of catalyst for this entire post-Doom series. Mm -hmm. Because it seems to me every million, you know, every season there's going to be several more million people that will move through some form of denial or functional denial and be ready for this kind of a conversation uh, that weren't ready last season. And I want yes. to have a body of conversations where people can watch some of these amazing conversations that Connie edits the ones she wants to edit, but they'll all be available in audio. And then people can find some of these people to be teachers and mentors and people that they can uh, learn from and be inspired by. And that's, that's why I'm doing well, it. Well, I, I uh, you know, deep bow of gratitude to you and Connie for uh, providing a real service uh, in, in, in this moment. This is the zeitgeist of awakening. And uh, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be a lot of pain and suffering around waking up to the fact that so much is going to be lost or is already being lost. You know, it's, uh, it's, well, it's, it's really important that we ask that question, how can I serve at what level, at what scale, in the face of this, this kind of grief and, and, yes. and suffering? Because, as you know, my philosophy is if you want to create a new culture, which is what I think we're trying to do, mm -hmm. throw a better party. Well, that doesn't mean superficially just get drunk and, uh, you know, be all Dionysian. It, it, it means look for the joy in serving life now in this moment. Yes. At, at whatever scale uh, uh, fits your, your skills. Wonderful. Because these stories need to be told. They need to be told in terms of maximum cultural diffusion yeah. in lots of different ways. And, uh, you know, you're speaking the contemporaneous, timely language of multimedia. You know, the uh, the internet and digital technologies have made global access uh, a reality. I, I must say, my head is still spinning from the rapid evolution of digital technology in the past yeah. 25, 30 years. Just the opportunity is there. You know, as well as the dark side, as you know. But uh, yeah. let's focus on the light. <laughs> Yeah, the heart of this uh, of this series is various thought leaders and uh, artists and uh, activists and what have you sharing their journey, their story. Please. Sure. Well, uh, give you the short form. Uh, and Doesn't have to be too old, short. Well, no, but uh, the twelve years old uh, turned out to be one of those awakening ages for me. As I said, I became a professional jazz musician at age twelve. Joined the union and started to play uh, locally, uh, uh, and that brought me great joy and also just uh, the experience of taking the risk of improv improvising music uh, in, in a uh, community in, with a group of people. The other thing that uh, happened is that I read the book Siddhartha by Herman Hesse and uh, mm -hmm. for a 12 year old to kind of get that the Buddha walked away from a pretty sweet lifestyle and sought enlightenment because he re recognized that uh, something else was driving human suffering than uh, poverty. And it uh, led me to just be interested. That's how I got into philosophy and uh, 
theology, it, it just struck me that, boy, these deep questions are really where the sweet spot is when you, if you're looking for human happiness and equanimity, uh, you know, the Buddha seems to be on the right path. Right. So when I got to college, I went to Cornell for four years. Uh, it was at the height of the Vietnam War between 65 and 69. And, you know, I was an anti-war activist. Uh, I was very interested in alternative ways of being. The psychedelic movement had its impact on me. Uh, I had some direct experiences of mystical union that, uh, you know, I, I would say were formative in terms of my understanding of the nature of reality. But I was an idealist, you know. I, 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 by the time I got to medical school and got involved with holistic medicine, I really thought the revolution was well at hand and that by the end of the 70s, uh, where we were idealistically dreaming things could or should go, uh, we, we'd get there. And of mm -hmm. course, that was the naivete of youth. Uh, it hasn't worked out quite that quickly or quite as well as any of us had, had hoped. But I uh, not only started practicing medicine, uh, you know, in the early 70s, uh, but that's what we started Interface, this holistic education center simultaneously in uh, 1974. And that's where I was able to bring great teachers and people that I was interested in studying with to Boston to do public presentations. We started with Buckminster Fuller, as I mentioned, and, uh, you know, it, it was just an inspiration to work with Bucky for seven years. And really, uh, I mean, he was uh, techno-utopian in style, but uh, he was also just a, a beautiful human being who really cared about creating a world that worked for all. Yes. And he called it the world game back then. And so, when the limits to growth came out, uh, you know, I, I was in Boston and uh, they, they were at MIT. Uh, I, I just, uh, I realized I've got to really take an in-depth look at the ecological and environmental movements. Uh, they, they know something that's really critical to our survival and uh, it, it really needs to be taught. People need to wake up. And it always amazes me. You, you keep thinking it's going to happen overnight, but uh, here we are, you know, <laughs> 35 years later, and uh, there's a ways to go. But that's essentially, I spent my uh, entire adult life, uh, both at Interface for 20 years and so before I moved, we moved out to the West Coast uh, in 1991 uh, to Whidbey Island, uh, having started Hollyhock in 1982 and having my family living in Seattle, uh, I had lots of interesting reasons to relocate and Whidbey, I don't know, you can say whatever you want about Whidbey, this is an amazing conscious community of people on the south end of this island. And I wholeheartedly very, agree, it's one of our favorite places in all of North America. Yeah, it's a really, it's a blessing to live here. Yes. So in the early 80s, we started Interface, as I said, or not Interface, uh, Hollyhock in 82. Uh, by 1986, Peggy, my wife and I, and a group of friends wanted to start to play with conference process. We wanted to really invent something that was more playful and engaging. We wanted to create a better party as a conference. And so we started something called the Hollyhock Invitational Conference, which we changed the name to uh, Hollyhock Summer Gathering. But... Uh, 
I've been doing that for 34 years now at, at Hollyhock, and we, we also do a winter gathering here at the Whidbey Institute called the Whidbey Winter Gathering. That's become, from a creative point of view, uh, social creativity, social invention, uh, kind of our laboratory, you know, mm -hmm. a place where we keep the structure and the rules to a minimum and allow for maximum creativity based on the fact that you're in a safe, supportive, loving field of energy. And uh, it's amazing what happens when people feel safe and supported uh, in community. Uh, I mentioned that over and over again, simply because it, it is, I keep coming back to whatever the problem is, community is the answer. Yes. That yes. the situation we face is, uh, you know, it's not, there's no individual solution here. Right. The way I've sometimes spoken about it is that bees thrive in hives, wolves thrive in packs, humans thrive in tribes or tribe-like communities, and mm -hmm. we don't thrive without it. Exactly. And of course, as a medical person, uh, I've been very interested in the neuroscience and the uh, psychobiology of uh, compassion, positive, you know, relationships. Uh, it, it's... Uh, <laughs> The, the the fact that we are social animals is built into our nature, and that, that's that's not a bad thing. That's that's potentially a saving grace. And so, uh, over the years, uh, you know, in the in the past, I must say, in terms of the climate issue itself, it's been 15 years or so that you know, kind of gets on the radar, and you keep wanting to hold it off into the <laughs> into the corner because it's such an overwhelming thing. The past five years, six years, uh, I've embraced the tragedy that we, we are in the midst of creating. And I'm just really uh, saddened by, in particular, the political leadership in this country uh, around these issues. It is shameful. Yes. And uh, history will not look kindly on this uh, episode. Uh, but I'm committed to, uh, you know, it's not like the climate crisis is the center of my being or my world, but let's put it this way. I see it as there's a field of sadness and grief that we're all immersed in, whether you're conscious of it or not. It expresses itself as stress or dysfunctional stress regulation, you know, uh, in our lives. Uh, and as a traumatic kind of uh, process, let's, let's say, uh, as a psychiatrist and somebody interested in mental health, I can tell you that uh, we need to find healthy ways to embrace this kind of collective loss. Yes, amen. And that, that's really, uh, give you an example, the, the themes from the, uh, the winter gathering this year is embracing love and joy in chaotic, in chaotic times. It's pretty clear why that might be a relevant issue. <laughs> The yeah, summer very, gathering. Very, yeah, very similar to the uh, subtitle of my sermon from last week, I think, which was post doom inspiration, finding joy in contracting times or something like that. Yeah, uh, it's a paraphrase of the same idea. Well, I, again, these are zeitgeisty, you know, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Uh, this is what's up. And uh, the summer gathering this year is navigating the tides of change. Uh, borrowed a title from an old friend of mine, David LaChapelle, who wrote a book called navigating the tides of change, but you get the image that uh, there's a level of uncertainty and chaos 
as a, as a process that, uh, I mean, it turns out creativity requires this. So you can see this is a very pregnant creative moment in human history, uh, but it's usually uh, accompanied by breakdown and breakthrough prior to the emergence of something surprisingly beautiful and new. Yes, yes. So a lot of my work, just like with the Story Dome and the Universe Story, focuses on how do you inspire through awe and wonder uh, the joy of living and the recognition that it's a blessing just to be alive yes, exactly. and, and, and to take that as, uh, you know, that vocation of uh, bringing your great passion to the world's great need. I mean, that, uh, yes. that's what, yeah, exactly, where they intersect. So that's what my life has been about for the last, I'm 72, <laughs> the last 72 years. Yeah. Well, I mean, I so, I'm so grateful that you shared it that way because I, you know, you're 11 years older than me and I have viewed you and related to you literally since the late 1980s, back when I was still in Massachusetts, I became aware of you, although I don't think we met back then, but I've seen you as an older brother on the path since that time. And I'm not aware of any significant divergence. Uh, it seems to me that we share what I consider to be the most important priorities, commitments, values, um, vision, and, and a heart sensibility in terms of what's needed for our times. And so uh, yeah, there's a <laughs> remarkable resonance between our work and, you know, I consider you a kindred spirit, a, a real soul brother. Yeah. yeah and, that, uh, that, that language works for me too. Well, it really, it helps to have uh, spirits along the path who are cheering you on. You know, I've been cheering you on, you've been cheering me on, and of course, lots of other people too, but yeah. it's, uh, it's a beautiful thing. It, it, it makes it the better party, you know? Yeah, yeah. We do have fun when we get together. My it is true, <laughs> it is true. Yes, exactly. Rick, one of the things that you touched on briefly before, but I, I didn't love to have you go more deeply into it. Um, I, I typically ask questions related to human nature, the big picture, we've touched on that already, and also impermanence and death. And so um, anything you want to say about either human nature or uh, sort of impermanence and death, and then, you know, you can say it, the, go back to yeah, the other. Yeah. I want you to, to go into both. Well, let's start with uh, impermanence and death, because I think that's one of the big stumbling blocks in our culture is the denial of death. And, uh, you know, Ernest Becker wrote the book many years ago that defined this issue of uh, the culture of violence that emerges when you uh, deny the role that death plays in the life cycle. Having worked as a physician with uh, life-threatening illness and seen lots of uh, patients uh, die uh, and, and kind of midwife that process with people, uh, I find there are real parallels between individual mortality and the life cycle of the individual human and the life cycle of societies and, and, and cultures. And well, again, because I believe in the living universe, uh, this, this is true at all levels. It's scalable. It's a fractal process of birth, development, degeneration, and, and death. So in, in my work with patients over uh, 20 years, I really, uh, I don't want to say I got comfortable with death, but recognizing the inter integrated 
form of life and death and, 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 and the, the, the fact that it's not something to be resisted or denied or feared, but accepted as a part of the cycle. Yes, exactly. And, you know, when you work with the universe story, it really starts to, you know, you, you start to see the fractal nature of life cycles and life and death cycles. I, uh, I became through my own subjective, you know, near-death experiences and in, in, in my own uh, ego-death experiences, uh, quite comfortable with both being with people who were dying, but also having the conversation in a way that became life-affirming. Now, there's a little paradox there where you're facing death, you might be physically dying, but the capacity to experience great joy and great love is readily available depending on the way you approach these things. And yeah. So I've really uh, continued to embrace in my work in terms of culture and, and, and community, the, the positivity that goes along with recognizing no matter what the situation, how then shall we live implies that you have a choice to live joyfully and in a field of love and until the moment of passing. I don't claim to have any great insight in terms of the mystery of what happens after you die. But I, I jokingly like to say that there doesn't seem to be a cosmic drain in the universe. It's not like you get flushed down the toilet here. <laughs> There's some kind of transmutation taking place. You know, it's, you know, I think it's a healthy way to look at these things. Yes, yes, exactly. What I have found in terms of the other part of this question is that inspiring awe and wonder, and for me, that's usually through either the arts or nature, immersive experiences in nature, in particular, uh, nature is, is really my church. Mm -hmm. yes. And uh, is one of the quickest ways to get people into a positive space around whatever place they are in the, in the, in the life cycle. So I, I, I know you've said this many times in your own work, uh, you know, death is not the enemy here. You know, it's, it's really an opportunity to live fully if you can embrace the entire cycle of life and death. And I, you know, I'm 72 years old now. So in the autumn of my life, I, I get to practice these things with friends and family all the time. Yeah, I uh, read a recent uh, quote by a poet named Edwin Arlington Robinson, life is the game that must be played. Yeah. And I, I really like that. Life is the game that must be played. And it can be played with different attitudes. And I really feel that if we tune into our essential nature as humans, that the survival of the fittest is not really what we're about. We're about the survival of the kindest. Yeah. And I think the time we're living in is a moment where we're going to get to practice this on a daily basis. Yeah. It's like the, uh, the Dalai Lama says, be kind whenever possible. It is always possible. <laughs> Anything you want to say about human nature? Well, I, I think it's important to recognize that uh, we have a violent nature where there's part of us that is very competitive and survival of the fittest under times of uh, resource restriction, you know, is obviously what happens. But the better angels of our nature 
speak to survival of the kindest because as social animals, I mean, we can't survive. Our babies are born completely helpless and have to be taken care of for seven years or so uh, in order just to survive. So all of a sudden, mutualism, the ability to take care of each other becomes central to our way of being. And I do think, I mean, this is where Bucky Fuller used to emphasize, you know, the world can be made to work for all. We have to change our minds. You have to shift, you know, to a more inclusive notion of what it means to be a part of a living, loving community. And I, you know, I, again, I keep going back to the neuroscience and the biology. The, the fact is that when you look at how we're put together biologically, we are creatures who are social pack animals by nature. And we should really strengthen our capacity. I mean, I, I jokingly, like Star Trek says, relationships, the final frontier. We as humans have to learn how to relate in loving and kind and compassionate ways all the time, as opposed to, you know, when we're feeling most open and most vulnerable. Yeah, and that's challenging when we're living in nested systems, including political, governmental, economic uh, systems that don't facilitate that uh, very well. No, as a matter of fact, we live in fear-based systems that are designed to keep people feeling insecure because power can be held over if people are in a state of terror and, uh, you know, it's just, it's not who we are in, in the deepest spiritual sense. And we, we should not lose sight of that. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Well, Rick, the last two questions that I invite you to address, if you want to, one relating to, uh, gifts, um, the way that, uh, I have it written here in coming to terms with the cascading problems of overshoot resource depletion, climate breakdown, et cetera. Have you encountered stages of grieving that went beyond mere acceptance? What opened up for you positively on the other side? Yeah, beyond acceptance for me is joy. You know, and it is the joy of being fully alive. I mean, just uh, expressing it as gratitude for being alive is a start, you know, because even if you're dying, you know, the fact is you're still alive or you're still in, 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 the, in the process and it's a gift. It's, it's a great gift to, to be alive. Now, since you have that opportunity to do something, that's the other thing. It's like action is where it's at at this point, not thinking about or talking about, but actually doing something loving, being of service to the whole in any way, shape, or form one is capable of doing. That That is a part of grieving in the sense that, you know, you have a, a, a locus of control inside yourself that you can direct your attention and your action in ways that are loving or ways that are unloving. You have choices. Yes. So for me, I really see myself as developing playful, joyous ways to engage in life in the face of loss, in the face of death works for me and yeah. it seems to work for others as well. So as a child of the sixties and somebody who's been involved in the consciousness movement for many years, think of all the different ways we have, whether it's breathing, visualization, meditation, mindfulness, yoga, Tai Chi, Qigong, you know, I mean, pick, I, I say, I tell people like uh, Joseph Campbell used to say, follow your bliss, you know, 
look for what you're attracted to, you know, see where the energy is, follow the intuition and you'll get to where you want to go. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a prescription. It's, it's more an invitation to be fully alive. And for each individual, that's a completely, you know, unique thing. Thank God. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Well, this is absolutely fabulous. Last question just has to do with um, what's your sense of what's beyond our control where, where, you know, and where we still can make a difference. In other words, what's your sense of what's no longer possible, but what still is possible? Well, I think, you know, you look at the science, you look at the evidence, you realize we are not going to be able to back out of the climate crisis that, that, it's upon us and it's going to play itself out. The question is at what level is it going to play itself out? And, you know, once you get up over two degrees centigrade, uh, we're looking at catastrophic events that, that not our generation, but our future generations are going to be dealing with. They're going to look back at us and say, what were we thinking? Uh, so on that level, ecologically, catastrophe is upon us. What we do seem to have some real influence over is how we behave in this moment, in our, our current situation, both, both toward our fellow humans and, and, and toward ourselves. You know, I, I really feel there's a lot that we can do. Uh, and again, you can tell I'm kind of focused on the, the mind and, and, and the heart. You know, the, the, the development of spiritual, I, I hate to say this, but I, I really think the entire world is going to experience what it's like to have a spiritual practice that involves all of life you know yes it's uh it's a good thing you know the the other thing i want to say is that we don't really know what's going to happen with any certainty one of the beautiful thing about emergent phenomena is that it's always a surprise you know I, i always use the example of the invention of chlorophyll and you know going from anaerobic life to aerobic life on this planet you know it was bad news for the bacteria when that happened, but big surprise, you know, looks what, look what's manifested as a result of the invention of chlorophyll. Well, I think there, Mother Nature has some secrets that haven't been told yet, and so I'm always looking for the surprises and, and, and the, uh, the pleasant ones rather than the unpleasant ones. And I think we're in for some surprises along the way. For more information about this project, go to postdoom.com.